A BNSF train hauling ethanol and corn syrup derailed and caught fire in Minnesota, about 100 miles west of Minneapolis. Residents were ordered to evacuate. No injuries were reported. We'll have the latest coming up on this Thursday, the 30th of March. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Kentucky has joined at least 10 other states in passing anti-transgender legislation this year. Arlo Guthrie takes to the Schubert stage in Boston this weekend to tell stories. He told us about why he made Alice's Restaurant a whole 18 minutes long. My intent was to stand up on stage and waste 18 minutes of my time so that I had less songs to learn. (laughs) It was really simple. Also, what's happening over at Fenway? Don't ask. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The White House is condemning the detention of a Wall Street Journal reporter in Russia. As NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, the Biden administration is in touch with the newspaper and the reporter's family. President Biden has been briefed on the detention of Evan Gershkovic, according to the National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. As we've said before, the targeting of American citizens by the Russian government is absolutely, completely unacceptable. And we condemn Mr. Gershkovic's detention, and we do so in the strongest terms. Kirby said the U.S. Embassy is in touch with the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. It's seeking consular access to Gershkovic. Kirby said he could not speak to a motive for Russia's actions and whether they were retaliatory, but he emphasized that any Americans residing or traveling in Russia should leave immediately. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Military officials say two Black Hawk helicopters crashed in Kentucky last night. Nine service members were killed. The helicopters were on a routine training mission when they went down in a field about 30 miles northwest of their base at Fort Campbell. Residents in the small town of Raymond, Minnesota, are returning to their homes after a train wreck and fire overnight. Tim Nelson of Minnesota Public News says the BNSF train was carrying ethanol and corn syrup. The ethanol caught fire and residents said they could see the flames from the burning train from much of the town. Fire crews from small towns in the area had to truck water to the scene on the edge of town to fight the fire. An evacuation order was lifted just before lunchtime in Raymond. That's about 90 miles west of Minneapolis. No injuries have been reported, and federal investigators are responding to the derailment. Tim Nelson reporting. More than 1,000 protesters gathered at the Tennessee state capitol this morning, calling for more restrictions on guns. The rally is a response to the school shooting that left seven people dead, including three children. From member station WPLN, Blaze Ganey reports. Parents and kids of all ages filled the galleries, hallways, and Capitol lawn as the House and Senate held session. At one point, law enforcement stopped letting people in the building due to it being at maximum capacity. Janet Makis, a pastor in Nashville, says the Republican lawmakers won't talk to her. Is anybody going to do anything or do we just continue to have weapons of war on the streets? If you're so concerned about mental health, then every single person who buys a gun should have an extensive mental health background. Current gun laws in Tennessee allow adults 21 and older to purchase a gun after passing a background check. There is no license or training required. A law reducing the age to 18 is expected to pass this session. For NPR News, I'm Blaze Ganey in Nashville. On Wall Street, just before the close, the Dow is up 141 points. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A former Boston police officer is under arrest in connection with the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol two years ago. The FBI arrested 52-year-old Joseph Fisher at his Plymouth home this morning. He's facing a felony charge of assaulting a law enforcement officer. Fisher retired from Boston police in 2016. He has not yet appeared in court. A new supplemental budget extends a number of pandemic-era policies in Massachusetts. Governor Maura Healey signed the 300 $189 million spending package yesterday. It gives permission for town meetings and other public bodies to meet remotely for another two years. It also lets outdoor dining and the sale of to-go cocktails continue through March of next year. State regulators are tweaking rules for gambling ads in Massachusetts. Gambling operators will be prohibited from paying spokespeople to encourage people to make certain types of bets or wager specific amounts. Also, paid endorsers must disclose how much money they're getting from gambling companies. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, certified financial planner professionals committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. At Fenway Park, things are getting out of hand. In the sixth inning now, the Baltimore Orioles lead the Sox 8-2. to two. In the forecast, sunshine, but chilly. 40 degrees now. Tonight should drop to just below freezing, clear skies. Tomorrow we should wake up to sunshine before the skies turn overcast. Could get rained on late in the day tomorrow. High temperatures about 48. 40 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. In three minutes, we have a whole array of news stories for you to hear. What we're asking you to do in the meantime is to please pledge to keep that kind of news coming, the kind of news that you're, you've are you been listening to through the day today, and we hope you will for the rest of the day as well. Here's the number to call, 1-800-909-9287. Or if you prefer, you can pledge online at WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins here in the studio with WBUR reporter Martha Biebinger. Hi, Martha. Hello, Lisa. You know, I often take for granted, Lisa, how much I get from this station. The array that you just talked about is just here anytime I want to turn on. You know, I've been working steadily on some story all day. I have no idea what's going on in the world, even though I work in news. Hey, is it opening day today? Yeah, I turn on the radio and there's Lisa ready to tell me all about it. You get election explainers here. You get theater reviews. You get conversations that take you into spaces you don't go otherwise. You might take for granted what it takes to put all that together, but please don't do that now. Please be sure to put your money where your ears are. Are, so to speak, and make a donation. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. You know, we, it's easy, I think, for people to think of um, uh, fundraising as kind of wallpaper, and I hope you don't think that way now that I've planted the idea. But honestly, <laughs> this is this is exactly the thing that we need to do is remind people because we often take for granted what we get every day, and you can think it comes for free. It does if you want it to, but please know that we can't keep going under that kind of fundraising model when we're not have any, having any funds that we raise. So we count on each and every one of you to make a contribution in proportion to how often you listen to WBUR and what it means to you. We know not everybody can make a pledge, but we hope you will right now if you can. And if you can become a sustainer, that means a lot to us, uh, 10 
$10 a month, $20 a month, $100 a month for anybody who can swing that. And if you give right now, you will be entered in to win uh, a a $10,000 vacation from anywhere in the world. This is courtesy of Shorts Travel. You can use this for air travel, ground travel, a customized dream getaway of your choosing. You can go darn near anywhere as long as it comes in at or under $10,000. So make the call right now. Get in on the sweepstakes. And that's not the only gift that we have for you. If you make a pledge now, we have a $50 gift card to Weston Nurseries waiting for you. You may see a little bit of spring outside your apartment window and think you want to bring some of that in with a plant or look out at your yard and think of all the projects that you need to get going. That $50 will get you started. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. We so appreciate your call. If you've called already, thank you so much. If you haven't, do it right now. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Cultural Coalition. WICN and Mechanics Hall present Club 321, April 6th, with singer-songwriter Will Daly, WorcesterCulture.org, and Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 5th, SemesterOff.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Family and friends gathered yesterday to remember Ivo Otieno, the 28-year-old black man killed in custody at a Virginia psychiatric hospital earlier this month. The Reverend Al Sharpton, by now a familiar voice at the funerals of black men killed in police custody, delivered the eulogy. And he called for new standards and laws regarding how law enforcement interacts with people with mental illness. This boy wasn't hurting nobody. He had a sickness and illness. And if you were not equipped or trained to deal with the illness, then you should not have showed up to answer the call. The Reverend Al Sharpton joins me now. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. You delivered a striking eulogy for Ivo Otieno yesterday, and I'd like to begin by asking you, did you have the opportunity to spend some time before delivering that eulogy with his family? What did you learn about him? I did talk with his mother and his brother, and uh, they told me that he was a very artistic, wanted to build a record company. We played a video during the services of where he had done a rap song and that he was one that was very honest and open about his mental health illness, but that he was not going to let that debilitate him. They kept asking me to make sure I emphasized that. I mean, this is a family that, understandably so, is still grieving and grappling with loss. But I wonder, in your conversations, have they expressed to you what they hope might come of this moment and this tragic loss? Are there any changes that they hope to see? Yes. uh, The mother, Carolyn, said she would like to see a law that would deal with how you handle the question of mental illness, uh, where law enforcement doesn't necessarily kick in, but it kicks in with people that are trained in the medical health field. So uh, we are stressing that, and, and I called on that yesterday. Let's remember that Governor uh, Yumkin is being touted by some to be a presidential candidate, 
And so we've called on him to come forward and deal with the possibility of a law to deal with all of this. That's right. You called on Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia by name. And we should note he has not yet declared that he would run for president. But I'm curious in this moment of mourning, but also a moment that you used as a call to action, why specifically shine a light on Governor Youngkin there in Virginia? Because health services is under the auspices of the governor. And as he tries to build a national reputation, he needs to deal with a real tragedy right there in Virginia. How he operates on this tragedy will tell those of us around the country a lot about him. You're talking about an unarmed, non-threatening young black man who was handcuffed and shackled while these people piled on him to where they literally choked the life out of him. The governor ought to respond with more than sympathy. He ought to respond with some action legislation where this can't happen again. Reverend Sharpton, over the years, you have spent time speaking with and ministering to so many families like this one that find themselves thrust into a national spotlight that they did not ask for after their loved ones were killed in encounters with law enforcement. Do you give them advice on just how to survive and reckon with the place that they find themselves in? Well, we try to give them uh, full services because I think that people don't realize nobody signed up to be the next victim or the next family member of a victim. I chose to do what I do and been doing it all my life. They didn't choose this. They have no experience. They have no media training. They don't know how they vet uh, the different people coming to them and how you separate those that are just coming to get attention or those that are really going to stay with the family, help the family. I am talking to families now uh, that I've worked on their situations 30 years ago, and the media is gone, and then sometimes the community has calmed down, but they will never be the same. Though the details of these cases, these incidents are different, and every person is different. You have been in this position of speaking with these families, of giving eulogies like the one you gave this week, time and time again for people, including George Floyd in Minneapolis, just recently, Tyree Nichols in Memphis. It's an unfortunate long list. And I'd like to ask you, why do you feel it is so important to keep standing at the pulpit, to keep delivering these eulogies, to keep ministering to these families and to a nation who have questions about how and why these people lost their lives? It's important to me, one, because we built an organization, a civil rights organization, that this is one of the things. Voting rights and criminal justice reform are the tenets we built National Action Network on. But the personal side of it is I come out of, you know, Brownsville section of Brooklyn, New York, raised by a single mother on welfare with food stamps, I see a person laying in that casket. That could be me in that casket. That could be my daughter or my grandson. And I'm going to speak for them because somebody would have had to speak for me. We're at a moment where there is continued stalemate, continued failure of passage of federal legislation. So I'd like to ask you, when you talk with these families about the potential for legislative change, what do you tell them about the timing? How do you, I, I have to imagine if you are a mother who has lost their child, this has got to be exhausting year after year, day after day. I tell them the truth, that 
we can't bring your child back, but we can certainly raise your child's situation and your situation to where there's meaning. There's meaning and your child could be a symbol that we cannot continue to let this happen. And I tell them, I can't promise you when it's going to happen on a federal level, but I can promise you that we'll be there until it happens. The Reverend Al Sharpton, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about six minutes, the world's worst cyclones hit Bangladesh, yet death tolls are falling. Coming up, the success of sophisticated flood warning systems and even low-tech community efforts. On Wall Street, the markets closed higher for a second straight day today. The Dow picked up more than four-tenths of a percent. S&P gained more than a half percent, and the Nasdaq rose nearly three-quarters of a percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Got a strong wind out there today. Beautiful blue skies tonight, clear and chilly down around the upper 20s. Tomorrow should change over from sunshine in the morning to cloudy skies in the afternoon. Chance of rain, too. Highs about 48 degrees. 40 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections, committed to providing impartial recommendations on home improvements and repairs, jbsinspections.com, and Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds, salemstate.edu slash graduate. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At WBUR and NPR, we bring you the kind of journalism that makes a difference in the world. Journalism with real impact requires a significant investment from our reporters and editors and our listeners. Our contributing listeners provide the largest share of WBUR's funding. So when you hear a story that makes a difference to you, make a contribution to us. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. So if you think of anything that you've heard today or even yesterday on WBUR, has it made a difference in any way to you? Has it uh, made your understanding of something stronger? Has it caused you to raise an eyebrow, to chuckle, to do anything different than if you hadn't been listening? We'll call and make a pledge right now in whatever amount you think WBUR in aggregate is worth to you. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. We are very happy to say that we have a flash match on the table right now. It's a dollar for dollar match. Some members of the Murrow Society decided to put it up to continue to incentivize you to make your phone call now to WBUR. It is only good until 442, so that's just about 25 minutes. So a great incentive for you to call 1-800-909-9287 or go online, WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Martha Biebinger. You know, Lisa, we often talk about how we are only as strong as everyone who listens, only as strong as everyone who can afford to contribute to these vital, provocative conversations and stories that you're hearing now. But maybe we're actually doubly as strong right this minute. If you can double the impact of your pledge with this dollar-for-dollar match. I mean, it's a great way to feel like 
you just made a super generous contribution. <laughs> you should pat yourself on the back when that $25 turns into $50 a month or the 10 turns into 20. It's a wonderful way to partner with somebody else for the station that gives you so much every day. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. So once again, we have this dollar for dollar match on the table. Give $50, it becomes $100 for us, but no more out of your pocket. By the way, if you want to be a sustainer and you can give, uh, say, $25 a month, that becomes $50 a month for us. And again, no much, no more coming out of your bank account. So the number again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. That's uh, $50 a month for the whole year, right? Yes. Not for just the one month. That's really cool. That's pretty fabulous. Makes, yeah. you, makes, makes you look really good on I'll paper. Get, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 1-800-909-9287. It takes just a couple of minutes, and you will get right back to the news and program that you count on, that you turn to here, that is really, for many of you, kind of the, the backbone of your, of your lives, of your days, of your news coverage, at least. We are so grateful to those of you who turn to us in that way, who trust us, who have taken the time to say, this is where I want to put my time and money. But but don't forget the money part because it is what makes us roll and it's the way that we're going to keep doing what we do for you. So 1-800-909-9287. Do it before 442, Lise? Yeah. 442. That's when this uh, match, dollar for dollar match, ends. Um, and we don't know when the next one will be. We're hoping that we'll have another one, but we hope that you will take advantage of this one while it's on the table now. And one more thing. We have these sweepstakes going only until 7 o'clock. Friday night is this on offer. Call now, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org, and you could win a $10,000 vacation anywhere in the world. What's not to like? Make your call, pledge your support to WBUR, and start dreaming just in case, because somebody is going to win these sweepstakes. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. When you make your pledge, please pledge as much as you can right now, because it will be doubled by some members of our Morrow Society. We so appreciate what they're doing and what you are, too, when you call or go online at WBUR.org. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Juana Summers. Now we're going to take you to the front lines of climate change. Bangladesh is a low-lying country south of the Himalayan mountains, and it's particularly vulnerable to flooding. It also gets battered with some of the world's worst cyclones. But what's surprising is that fatalities have fallen dramatically, because Bangladesh isn't just ground zero for climate disaster. It's also a hotspot for solutions, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from the country's north. Right now, it's the dry season, and I'm on a roughly 25-foot wooden boat making my way through like a web of capillaries that covers northern Bangladesh. Narrow, muddy, tiny rivers. There's some water buffalo, fishing boats, 
some children running along the riverbank waving. But in the wet season, this just becomes a, a shallow sea. A shallow sea that last June swept away the house that Majida Begum had lived in for 60 years. She squats in the mud where her kitchen used to be, scaling fish with a dull blade. Seasonal floods are part of life here, but they've gotten increasingly erratic, and last year's were the worst Majida had ever seen. Pretty soon we'll be living in the tops of trees, she says, or the land will be strewn with our bodies. I tell my American friends, you know, you send your skeptics to Bangladesh. The awareness of climate change is the highest in the world. Climate scientist Salimul Haq says that while Bangladesh contributes only a tiny fraction of global carbon emissions, everyone here feels their effects. This country is basically a giant river delta that gets inundated as Himalayan glaciers melt, as monsoon rains come in spasms now, and as sea levels rise. But Haq says... We have gone through the doom and gloom phase. That's yesterday's news in Bangladesh. Now it's all about solutions, using satellites to track cyclones, buoys with solar-powered sensors to measure sea level, and 4G cell phone service in areas that might not even have electricity or plumbing, so that... When something happens, almost everybody on land gets the message, gets to shelter, and survive. It's not the technology, it's social capital. It's people knowing what to do. That is Bangladesh's biggest asset. Majida Begum, whose house washed away... She knew when to flee because of a warning sent out by this man hundreds of miles south in the capital, Dhaka. Parto, P-A-R-T-H-O. Parto Protin Barua is an engineer at Bangladesh's Flood Forecasting and Warning Center. Last June, he noticed an unprecedented amount of rain forecast for the Himalayan foothills, an area that's been deforested in recent years. There is no grass or no trees on the hills, so the water just rush, rush downstream. Downstream to low-lying Bangladesh. So he called up his colleague Nazma Akhtar in the far north of the country near the Indian border. She's a housewife with a side job reading a gauge in her local river. This with the numbers on it, it's like a scale showing the river level. Water level, water level. It looks like a yardstick in the riverbank. She checks it five times a day and sends readings to Dhaka by text message on her indestructible old Nokia brick phone. Bangladesh has hundreds of people like Nazma, regular folks, not scientists, who monitor water levels on the front lines of climate change. Last June, Nazma's readings were 15 times higher than normal, a sign of massive rainfall to the north even before it began raining here. So Nazma says she knew what was coming, some of the worst flash floods ever to hit her country. And she felt a duty to warn people. Back in Dhaka, Parto, the engineer, got Nazma's data from the north, plugged it into his hydrological model, and totally freaked out. It broke like the records of like last 100 to 150 years. So he grabbed a little microphone attached to his desktop computer and recorded this message on June 19th, 2022. Assalamu Warning people in the north of the country to evacuate. We try to keep it as simple as possible and as short as possible. And then he holds his breath and hopes people get it in time. 
That message went out on Bangladesh's emergency warning system as a smartphone push notification, but also as an analog recording, accessible even on old Nokias like Nazma's. Meanwhile, up north, Majida Begum was in her kitchen scaling fish and watching the sky cloud over. She lives two hours boat ride from the nearest road and farther still from any flood shelter. She does not have a phone, neither does her neighbor, Noor Jahan, but Noor's nephew does. I don't know what kids do with those fancy phones, Noor says, but somehow that day we got the scientists' warning. It was actually two days after Parto had sent it out and the nephew got the message that the warning spread by word of mouth through this village. And the river was already lapping at the edge of Majida's kitchen. We took refuge on a boat and went three days without food, she recalls. But everyone in their village survived. Old Bangladeshi folk songs celebrate seasonal rains as bringing life rather than trauma. A group of musicians in this village have been reviving those songs and also writing new ones, with lyrics encouraging people not to chop down trees or toss litter. Because music, too, is a timeless rural tool for spreading awareness and staying safe. Since last June's devastating flood, neighbors here have been rebuilding raised houses atop sandbags and fortifying the foundations with local indigenous materials. This one is newly built. It's still a mud floor, but it's also mixed with cow dung, and they seal the floor so that when this house does flood, it doesn't become a muddy mess. It sort of acts like a varnish. Majida also built herself something handy a cook stove that's portable instead of being fixed to the ground. So that the next time she has to evacuate, and she's sure there will be a next time, at least her family won't go hungry. Lauren Freyer, NPR News in Sunamganj, northern Bangladesh. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Texas, a federal judge has blocked the Affordable Care Act's mandate that health insurance plans cover certain preventative care at no cost to patients, such as screenings for certain cancers and HIV treatments. Judge Reed O'Connor had previously found that the PrEP mandate for HIV care violated federal religious freedom law, and today he blocked the Biden administration from enforcing the mandates Here's White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre. DOJ and HHS are reviewing the decision uh, made by the judge in Texas earlier today. Uh, but we want to be very clear. Uh, this, uh, this case is yet another attack on the Affordable uh, Care Act, which has been the law of the land for 13 years now. 13 years. As of 2020, more than 150 million Americans were eligible for preventative care free of charge under the ACA, also known as Obamacare, 
If today's ruling isn't overturned, insurers will be able to charge patients co-pays and deductibles for such services in the future. In Washington, D.C., prosecutors say Grammy-winning musician Praz Michelle of the Fugees violated federal conspiracy laws to secure a big payday. NPR's Carrie Johnson has the story. Pros Michelle may be best known as a member of the hip-hop group Fugees. Prosecutor Nicole Lockhart says this case is about foreign influence and concealment. The Justice Department says Michelle conspired to violate election laws to funnel foreign money to the Obama campaign in 2012. Years later, he allegedly tried to press the Trump White House to scuttle a criminal case and help China get its hands on a dissident on U.S. soil. The defense has said Michelle acted to advance American interests, not China's, so he had no obligation to register as a foreign agent. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. On Beacon Hill, the House is preparing its proposal for tax reform. As WBUR's Steve Brown reports, it would make permanent changes to the state's tax code. The legislature was on track to pass tax reform last year, but the deal fell apart when an obscure law forced the state to return $3 billion in rebates. But in an address to the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce, Speaker Ron Mariano said the House is set to release another proposal this session. Among the reforms being considered for proposal are several of the provisions that the legislature advanced last session. Provisions that were designed to provide relief to families, renters, and many of the Commonwealth's most vulnerable residents, all while making Massachusetts more competitive with other states. Mariano refused to put a dollar figure on the package and hinted changes to the estate tax will be part of the plan. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The state Supreme Judicial Court has ruled the city of Boston has the authority to mandate COVID-19 vaccines for its employees. Today's decision overturns a lower court ruling. That ruling had blocked the city from enforcing a mandate it imposed in 2021. The justices say Boston has no obligation to bargain with worker unions over the vaccine mandate. The city of Boston is using federal funds to expand its tuition-free community college program. The initiative pays for up to three years of college at six schools. Mayor Michelle Wu announced today the program now covers every city resident enrolled in an associate's degree program or certificate program. Previously, students were subject to income and immigration status restrictions. The colleges taking part in the program include Roxbury Community College, Bunker Hill Community College, and Benjamin Franklin Cummings Institute of Technology. Opening day on Lansdowne Street in Boston. Right now, it's the Red Sox 123rd season in Boston. They're 112th at Fenway Park. Red Sox public address announcer Henry Mahegan welcomed fans to the game today. This rite of spring brings with it not only the hope of warmer weather, but the optimism of a team full of exciting young players, familiar fan favorites, and sensational stars who are joining our club for the first time. And the Red Sox are hosting the Baltimore Orioles now. The O's are leading Boston 10-4 in the seventh inning. We will have much more on opening day coming up at 442 with WBR's Anthony Brooks, who is at Fenway Park right now and hoping for a better score by the time we talk to him. Overnight tonight, look for chilly, uh, clear skies should be chilly, still falling to about the upper 20s. Then for tomorrow, sunshine early, clouds later on, chance of rain by this time tomorrow afternoon. Temperatures about 48 degrees. 40 degrees now in Boston at 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974 in Cambridge, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com.
I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Please make the phone call right now. We would so appreciate it, especially because right now we have, and this is just for about another four or five minutes, uh, we have a flash match on the table thanks to some generous members of our Murrow Society. They are going to match your pledge dollar for dollar. <clears throat> this is only good until 442, and we hope that means that you will go to the phone or go to your um, uh, um, digital device, whatever it is that you're going to be using right now, and make Any the call. Any place you can give money. <laughs> That's right, WBUR.org. You can drop it off at the front door. <laughs> WBUR.org or call one 800 909 I'm Lisa Mullins. That wonderful laugh comes from the amazingly wonderful Martha Biebinger. Thanks, Lisa. So great to be here and so great to be with all of you, asking you to do what you can. It's 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 a tough time of year. We know there's there's always a lot of demands on your time and money. In the meantime, we're sending people around the world. Lauren Freyer to Bangladesh. Lauren, who's on the uh, the climate desk, the newly created, relatively newly created climate desk at NPR, is an example of the commitment we make with your dollars to tackle some of the most challenging topics of our time. It has its own team of reporters and producers and editors. We here at WBUR contribute stories. And that's what your donation funds. Now for the next, whatever it is, three or four minutes, you can contribute twice as much as you might have planned or twice as much as you might have thought you could because some other contributors are going to match you dollar for dollar. 1-800-909-9287. Now's the time or WBUR.org. And one thing to remember as well, not only will you get your pledge matched dollar for dollar, but you will be entered in to win the sweepstakes that WBUR has on offer this uh, fun drive. They are, uh, this is only good until 7 o'clock on Friday night. You could win a $10,000 vacation where anywhere, anywhere where you can come in at a bill that is $10,000 or under. So it could be Tokyo, it could be uh, Malawi, it could be Madagascar, it could be pretty much anywhere in the world. Just make the pledge right now and have your name entered in to win through the sweepstakes. And by the way, for those people who are sustainers who give on a monthly basis, you are automatically entered in to win. So um, if you can become a sustainer right now, that would be especially good because if you can give, say, $30 a month, that becomes $60 a month. And that lasts for an entire year. Again, thanks to this match, this dollar for dollar match on the table right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I love, Lisa, working for an organization that is a shared community resource, an organization that so many people contribute to in so many different ways, an organization where one group of listeners that has a little more money than maybe the rest of us offers to match what we can do dollar for dollar, an organization where we really count on you who are listening to run this place. You are literally the financial glue that holds us together. And we do that, we rely on you out of faith. We trust that you're going to make that contribution when we ask you, when we tell you it's time, when we offer you this great opportunity where your contribution will be matched one for one, $25 becomes 50. Whatever you can do, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org.
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. When you support public media, you are supporting independent information. Might not always like it, but you'll know that it's delivered in your interest. The facts that citizens need so that we can do our jobs as citizens. Thanks for making WBUR possible. We only have two minutes left to go, and then this match is over. So um, listen to what Steve Inskeep said, what Martha Biebinger said, and basically... Uh, anytime you listen to WBUR, it comes at a cost, and we hope you will defray that cost right now and have your pledge matched dollar for dollar right now. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We are going next, in fact, in just about just under two minutes, um, to check in with Anthony Brooks over at Fenway Park, where I'm sh- sure things have turned around <laughs> completely of since course they we have. last gave the score, which we shall not mention. And then, Martha, we're going to be having a great conversation with Arlo Guthrie, who I really adore. I'm guessing you've seen him in concert as well. And it's just one of the reasons we call the show All Things Considered, because we give you the hard (laughs) news about climate and also about um, uh, social issues and sports and arts and culture. So this is what you're counting on from WBUR, and we are counting for you to help us pay for it. We are counting down, too, to the time when we won't have a dollar-for-dollar match on the table. And we really want you to to jump in now if you've got the chance, because we want to take advantage of this opportunity to... um, use the contributions of of some of our other listeners and contributors. And we want to hear from you to let us know that you're out there, that that you're going to join us in this effort to produce some of the best darn news and information out there. You turn to us for it. We give it to you. We come back to you when it's time to pay the bills. Now is that time. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. 40 seconds more for this match. And so you can call right now. Have your pledge, whatever amount, match dollar for dollar. Become a sustainer. You get your $20 pledge a month matched. So it'll be $40 a month, only 20 to you. The Morrow Society picks it up, uh, picks up the rest of it for the course of a year. one 800 909 or WBUR.org. You still have time to call. This uh, dollar-for-dollar match is just about over. Call now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. It's a chilly opening day at Fenway Park. And now the players. Infielder number 10, Trevor Story. Now for the really bracing news. Red Sox started struggling in the fourth inning against Baltimore. WBUR's Anthony Brooks is there. Tell us what's happening now, Anthony. Well, they're playing Sweet Caroline in the, back, in the background. So, <laughs> well, that's so the good that news. Makes, that's the good news. Uh, the Oreos started off this afternoon with a leadoff home run. Now it's 10-4. Uh, to four. 
Orioles, um, uh, bottom of the eighth inning. Um, but, you know, this is opening day. It's a new season, lots of optimism. And uh, you heard that from a lot of people, including from Governor Maura Healy, who was here. She was at Fenway Park and started, officially started today's game with the uh, traditional play ball call. I always believe in the Red Sox. Always looking forward to the season. And, you know, it's just great to see the energy and the electricity. There are a few kids who looks like maybe they got hall passes to skip school today, maybe. I see a lot of kids, <laughs> which is fun. Fun, but the Red Sox uh, have a little work to do in the next inning, next two innings if they want to come back and win this home opener, Lisa. Not so good, so good. Um, the team has a lot of new and newish players. It's the first uh, season without longtime favorite shortstop Sander Bogarts. I wonder how fans are feeling about the team and its chances this year with people like well, uh, Bogarts gone. Yeah, right. Nobody who follows baseball closely is expecting this team, this version of the Red Sox, to, to lead the league. Um, you know, with Bogarts gone, there are really only just a couple of legitimate stars. Rafael Devers, of course, third baseman signed to a multi-year contract in the offseason. There are also high hopes for newcomer uh, Masataka Yoshida, who's a genuine star from Japan. And there are hopes that pitcher Chris Sale can recatch some of his uh, earlier glory after, um, you know, just tons and tons of, of injuries. But beyond that, this is a team of older veterans, past their prime, a mix of younger players who need to prove themselves. Still, here's um, Al McKim of Norwell, who's hoping that uh, he's hoping for the best from this team. I think we're underdogs, you know, based upon everything that I've read. But I feel good about it. I think we're going to have a lot of fun this year. I'm really looking forward to watching them play. We're optimistic. We know we're going to do better than last year, right? Got to do better than last year, right, Lisa? Because they finished dead last. So, yeah, one hopes it's better than last year. <laughs> or at least even. Um, so Major League Baseball instituted some new rules for this season. The biggest one is the pitch clock, which is meant to make things move faster. Tell us how it's going. Yeah, I mean, the pitch clock is one of three uh, new rules designed to speed up the game and address the boredom problem, quite frankly. And and it's a huge change for baseball. I mean, it's it's undoubtedly the biggest change in my lifetime. And it means shorter games. During spring training, the average game was almost a half hour shorter, 26 minutes shorter or so. Um, and the rule is moving this game along, but you know what doesn't move the game along, Lisa? What? Walks. Walks. And the Red Sox have issued lots and lots of walks today. That's part of the problem here uh, on this day. But here's Al McKinn again of Norwell, who generally approves of this rule's change. Here's what he said. I think it's going to force the pitchers to kind of behave a little differently too and, and the batters as well. We'll see how it goes, but I think it's important to keep the game kind of with a good pace and a good tone. I think that helps. But Lisa, not everyone likes the rule change. I spoke to Landon Harrell, who was visiting from Knoxville, Tennessee. He says he's a big Red Sox fan and not a fan of the new rule at all. I don't think so. I think baseball is meant to be traditional. And in that way, I think, you know, they're, they're harming the game more than they're helping the game. So. Really? so you don't think it's been too slow, too boring? I don't. I'm a traditionalist, so I love the original game of baseball, and I think that's how it should be played. So a little bit of a debate there. We'll see how this uh, uh, plays out during this season, Lisa. So two-time Cy Young Award winner Corey Kluber took them out for the Red Sox today, his first season here in Boston after 11 years with other teams, mostly Cleveland. How did he do? 
Well, not well. He really struggled to find the plate, issued a lot of walks, as I mentioned earlier, and he was gone after just three and a third innings. But, you know, Lisa, this is just one game. Um, the Red Sox could still come back, and if they lose, hey, they're still on track to win 161 games, right? That's right. And uh, maybe you can tell <laughs> us right now, Anthony, uh, from opening day at Fenway Park, the score right now is? 10-4, to 4, bottom of the eighth inning. Red Sox are at bat, and uh, yeah, 10-4. to 4. So not looking good for the uh, boys of summer here in 32-degree weather or whatever it is. It's cold. People look like they're dressed up to ski here, not to watch baseball. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, tomorrow. And, and the temperature's meant to be better tomorrow as well, so here's hoping. Thank you very much, Anthony Brooks. My pleasure, Lisa. Thanks very much. Arlo Guthrie is one of the most enduring figures of American folk rock. His 18-minute song and monologue, Alice's Restaurant, was a massive hit. He performed at Woodstock and has maintained an avid following for more than a half century. He's 75 now. His curls are still long and lush and now silver. Guthrie's had health issues and he's retired, partly, He's coming back to the stage for a handful of shows starting Saturday in Boston. It'll be more storytelling than performance. Arlo Guthrie still embodies the spirit of his father, the legendary Woody Guthrie. In the 1930s and 40s, Woody wrote and sang about freedom and his vision of America. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from the California to the New York Island. The redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Children sang the song in just about every American classroom, but Arlo and his sister didn't know that when they were kids in New York. We had changed schools, and I remember walking in there, and our music teacher led the entire assembly in This Land is Your Land. And I was the only one that didn't know the words. I mean, I knew that my father had written the song, but I had never bothered to learn it. I didn't think that anybody else had learned it. And so I ran home and told my dad what had happened. So he sat me down in the backyard with a little guitar that he'd given me, taught me the chords, taught me the words, and I've been singing it for the rest of my life. As I went walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me an endless skyway I saw below me a golden valley This land was made for you and me This land is your land has become more important as time goes by. When my father wrote it in 19, I guess, 41, 42, somewhere back in those years, it wasn't critically important. It was only afterwards, during the 50s and 60s and 70s, that his songs became known. And there were people coming to see me who were hoping that in some way I would carry on his work. And I never felt uncomfortable sharing my father. I wouldn't have done it exclusively. I wouldn't have been a clone of Woody Guthrie. I saw a lot of people come to our house, dressed like my dad, talked like my dad, sang like my dad, wrote songs like my dad, but they weren't my dad. Mm. And I thought his songs are important to a lot of people, and I owe it to them to continue singing them and to continue writing about the same things in a world that I was familiar with. One of the things my father noted was that 
It's better to fail at being yourself than to succeed at being somebody else. And I never wanted to be him, but I did want to be myself in a way that he would have approved, frankly. I mean, I'm a kid, I'm a son. And I wanted to bring it to a broader audience so that we could all laugh together and sing together and enjoy life together. And then there's this Arlo original. This song's called Alice's Restaurant. It's about Alice and the restaurant. Was the success of Alice's Restaurant a blessing or a curse? And we should say Alice's Restaurant, I mean, not many people have a song that comes out at 18 minutes at a time when everything else is coming out at three and three and a half minutes, becomes a major hit and has a movie made about it. Well, nobody in their right mind creates an 18-minute monologue to be played on radio. And that was certainly not my intent. My intent was to stand up on stage and waste 18 minutes of my time so that I had less songs to learn. (laughs) It was really simple. Uh, And I found a way to do that. So I was entertaining at the same time that I was wondering, how the hell are you going to remain on stage for another hour? What else you got? Well, luckily for me, I had my father and I would sing some of his songs. And luckily for me, I started writing some of my own songs. So I kept adding to my ability to remain on stage and not waste everybody's time, but certainly give them enough so that it wasn't a waste of their time to be there. I thought I did rather well. I think you did really well. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. The performances that you're going to be doing, including in Boston, You've decided to be in conversation with someone. It's mostly a conversation, if not all. I wonder how you made that decision and what you want to say. Well, there was a time when I was able to do 30 nights in a row. Each night was two hours long or something like that, two and a half hours. I mean, it was fun. It was great. Look, when you're 18 and you're a guy and you don't need a reservation at a restaurant because everybody knows your face, I would recommend it to anyone. But to live 50 or 60 years or 70 years like that, it gets a little nuts. (laughs) And over time, my voice couldn't physically handle it. The travel, the big band, the lights, the sound, the whole thing it took was getting to be too much. Your four children are all in music, some more than others. Is there a song that you would want or maybe have imparted to them that you think kind of synthesizes your philosophy? There was a song that came to me through my sister, Nora, that was my father's lyrics, a song called My Peace. I added music to it and frankly turned it into a song. I had to change a few words around because it was a poem. It's my peace, my peace is all I've got that I can give to you. I love that idea. I mean, you can tell your kids, you can explain to your kids about why the sky is blue and all that kind of stuff that they want to know when they're little. But the truth is, 
It's how you feel about yourself, how you feel about the world, your place in it. Not to get so frantic when times get crazy and not to get too excited when things go well. There's a balance. And if my kids have learned that through songs like My Peace, more power to them. You end a lot of your concerts with My Peace. And I have to say, you know how to create many special moments in your concerts with chuckles, with uh, irreverence, with irony, and with just gentle messages like that. You do it so well, Arlo. Thank you. Thank you. My peace, my peace is all I've got that I can give to you. My peace is all I've ever had. It's all I ever knew. I give my peace. Arlo Guthrie will be on stage at the Schubert Theater in Boston Saturday for stories and rarely seen footage. The show is called What's Left of Me. My peace, my peace is all I've got that I can give to you. My peace, my peace is all I've got. It's all I've ever known. My peace this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins in the studio with Martha Biebinger. And um, just a little behind the scenes, Martha, you know this already, but that was the original conversation that we had with Arlo went for 45 minutes. It was sheer delight. And the difficult part, of course, is deciding <laughs> what had not to, break to keep you away. in. I know. Yeah, it's so hard because he's such a great storyteller. But in the final version, what you heard there, the whole story was about eight minutes, including music. Five people here, at least five people at WBUR, had their hands on that story, mm-hmm. from the engineers mm-hmm. to the editors um, to uh, Eddie Mazoulis, who's you know pushing the buttons behind the scenes right now. And this is, you don't often think when you hear a piece like that, just the labor that's involved in it, along with the kind of creative ideas that are expressed and, and the editing that's done. So please understand what goes into everything that you hear on WBUR, whether it's a music piece, a, a hard news story, a, a, um, a sports story, whatever. And please pledge for it right now. We are taking a very short break, so please make the call, 1-800-909-9287, or go online at WBUR.org. These rich, stimulating conversations, they really are the beating heart of of public radio. But, But don't forget what else we've put together for you in this hour that is so unique about about. WBUR right here, right now. Anthony Brooks from Fenway Park, Lauren Freyer from Bangladesh, coming up with the latest train derailment. This one's in Minnesota. I mean, we take you where you need to go every day so that you are up to date, so that you understand the dynamics and the elements and the people behind really what makes our world tick. So 1-800-909-9287 is the way you become part of that link that keeps us all connected. Speaking about a link that keeps us connected, if you are able to call, uh, make a pledge, we hope you will, 
uh, you can enter into the sweepstakes. If you give right now, in fact, you could win. It doesn't matter how much you give or I think even whether you give. We hope you will. But you could win $10,000 in a vacation anywhere in the world. And uh, how's that for making connections anywhere? So please make the phone call right now. This is thanks to Shorts Travel, a $10,000 voucher for a vacation of your choosing. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. The sweepstakes offer is only up until 7 o'clock tomorrow night, so we hope you make the phone call right now. And you decide what you want to pledge to WBUR. If you can become a sustainer and pledge on a monthly basis, $15 a month, $30 a month if you can do it, then please do so. We welcome any and all pledges. So thank you in advance if you haven't pledged yet. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. I'm Here and Now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House is sharply condemning the detention of an American journalist in Russia. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the arrest of Evan Gershkovich of the Wall Street Journal marks a new escalation in tensions between Moscow and Washington. The Russian Federal Security Service is accusing journalist Evan Gershkovich of spying in the interests of the American government. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre calls those charges ridiculous. We condemn the detention of Mr. Gerskovich in the strongest, in the strongest terms. We also condemn the Russian government's continued targeting and repression of journalists. Gershkovich had received accreditation from the Russian Foreign Ministry to work in the country as a journalist. This is the first case of a U.S. reporter being detained for what the Kremlin describes as espionage since the Cold War. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency says he continues to be concerned about safety at a Ukrainian nuclear plant under Russian occupation. 
Fourth NPR's Jeff Bromfield. The Zaporizhia nuclear plant sits on the front lines of the war between Russia and Ukraine. It has endured fires, blackouts, and direct hits from artillery shells. The reactors at the plant have been shut down since September, but they still require cooling and maintenance to avoid an accident. Following his visit to the plant this week, the head of the IAEA, Rafael Mariano Grossi, said he's still very worried about conditions there and the risks posed by the war. The nuclear power plant should never be a military target. Grossi says he's continuing to work with both sides to try and establish some rules that would limit dangers to the facility. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, has pleaded not guilty to five new criminal charges, including conspiracy to violate campaign finance laws. NPR's David Gura has more. Sam Bankman-Fried, who now faces 13 criminal counts, was arraigned in a Manhattan courtroom. Federal prosecutors say he funneled customer money to political candidates, and they allege Bankman-Fried directed a bribe to at least one Chinese official of tens of millions of dollars in cryptocurrency. The U.S. government says Bankman-Fried hoped China would unfreeze trading accounts that belonged to a crypto hedge fund he founded. He's been under house arrest at his parents' home in Northern California. A federal judge approved new bail restrictions that will go into effect in a few days. David Gura. NPR News, New York. In a slight downgrade, the government says its figures still show the economy holding up. Revised fourth quarter GDP numbers show the economy expanding at a 2.6 percent annual rate. Stocks gain ground on Wall Street today. The Dow's up 141 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. A nonprofit co-founder who was facing fraud charges has died in a motorcycle crash in Easton. Police say 39-year-old Clark Grant was killed yesterday after an SUV struck the motorcycle he was operating. Grant and his wife, Monica Cannon Grant, founded Violence in Boston Incorporated. They were accused of defrauding the State Department of Unemployment Assistance. There's a COVID-19 outbreak at a Cambridge nursing home. The Department of uh, Public Health says 35 patients and 16 staff members at the Sancta Maria nursing facility have tested positive. The state has ordered the facility to temporarily stop admitting new residents. And leaders in the legislature say they're considering new gun regulations in Massachusetts. State Senate Majority Leader Cynthia Cream says she wants lawmakers to focus on ghost guns that don't have a serial number and cannot be traced. House Speaker Ron Mariano says the House is considering several measures, including updated firearms licensing policies. Over at Fenway Park opening day, the score in the ninth inning now is 10-7 to 7. Orioles. And in the forecast, look for um, clear skies tonight. The rest of the forecast coming up in just a bit. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, certified financial planner professionals committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. Tonight should get down to about the upper 20s. Then for tomorrow, a changeover from today should have sunshine in the morning, but then lots of gray in the afternoon. Chance of rain as well. Highs in the upper 40s. And for Saturday, rain in a big way. Temperatures inching to 63. Sunday, the sun comes out. Temperatures head back down to about 46. This is WBUR. It's 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Gu Wenda, United Nations. Opens April 1st. Plan your visit at pem.org. 
I'm Lisa Mullins with Martha Biebinger for just about three minutes. And I just wanted to mention one thing about our fundraising is there are stations around the country that watch how other stations do. And the stations that watch WBUR have commented on the fact that WBUR's listener contributions have remained steady at a time when others have fallen off. And we are so grateful. I mean, we really have so many generous listeners who have stuck with us and We're hoping that you will keep that trend going right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org because we know that there are sometimes people, there are some people who can't afford to give at certain times and not others. We hope that you know that we have a steady budget and we are trying to keep things together as best we can in the face of falling income that we would normally get from some of our underwriters So please make the call right now as we go back to the news in just a sec. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Whatever you can afford is what we ask. We only ask that you do what you think is reasonable and makes sense for you. If that's $10 a month, fabulous. If it's $20, we're very grateful. If you can do more, please do, because it is that commitment from everyone saying, I'm going to pledge what I can for the value that I get out of WBUR that has kept this radio station going for decades, and it's what we're counting on happening for the future. We take every dollar we get and turn it into the news. There's no big luxury expense accounts here. Your dollar is going into the story you're going to hear next, in this case from Minnesota, about a train derailment. But you will be having quite a package of news and information all this hour, and you know through the evening and tomorrow. It's here for you because of you. Do your part. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And don't forget that when you make the call to that number or go online at WBUR.org, you will be entered into win sweepstakes that uh, this is only uh, available for you until 7 o'clock tomorrow night. Sweepstakes for a trip Martha, do you know where? <laughs> There's so many places I want to go, least do I? Have. Well, that's the point. You can go anywhere on this. Uh, so this is a, uh, thanks to a great offer by Shorts Travel. So all the details um, will be provided at your request. We'd like to know, in fact, where you would like to go if you're lucky enough to win this Can sweepstakes. Can I go two places if I only spend half? Like it, the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, up to 10000 Sure. Okay, yeah. Yes. I'll budget. I'll be She's careful. Got a voracious appetite, that woman. So please make the phone call right now, one 800 9 09-9287-WBUR.org. Martha, you want to tell us where? Well, Iceland I have never been to. Yeah. I've also never been to a bunch of the national parks. I really oh, want to see. Yeah, very good. So, you could hit a couple, especially if you use one what of I'm those thinking. discounts. <laughs> yes. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Make the call. Just if you can become a sustainer, we would so appreciate it. $20 a month, $30 a month, what you can afford. If you want to make a one-time gift, that would be wonderful as well. We so appreciate your support. one 800 909 WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with customer service specialists available daily to help with your health and wellness questions in Cambridge and Brighton and at CambridgeNaturals.com. 
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. There has been another fiery train derailment, this time in the tiny town of Raymond, Minnesota. Nearly two dozen train cars left the tracks early this morning, about 100 miles west of Minneapolis. The train was operated by the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway Company. And some of those cars were carrying ethanol, which caught fire. Mark Zadeklik of Minnesota Public Radio News joins us now from Raymond. Hi there. Good afternoon. And Mark, there has been a lot of talk and concern about train derailments lately, especially after last month's explosive derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. If you could tell us what happened in this case and what you were hearing from folks there in Minnesota. Yeah, well, early today, a mixed load freight train was traveling through this rural town in Minnesota. At about 1.02 in the morning, 22 cars left the tracks. The railroad says the only hazardous cargo was ethanol. Some of the derailed cars containing ethanol caught fire. That prompted the evacuation of really the whole town just about uh, 2 o'clock this morning or so. Thus far, there have been no reports of any injuries. 72-year-old Rose Day was among the people that had to get up and go. The Raymond resident said she recently returned home from the hospital after surgery firefighters started knocking on her door in the middle of the night. I got the phone call and then I started looking out and then I saw flashing lights and stuff. And then they started coming through the mobile home park, which is behind me, and knocking on doors. I hadn't unpacked from getting home from having my knee replaced. So I threw the rest of the stuff together and had it ready. And then the fire department came and knocked on my door. Gil Rosine was also evacuated. He awoke to someone knocking on his door. Then I saw the, the fire, the, the flames. This is about 2 o'clock in the morning. The flames were just skyrocketing. And so it was very dangerous. And it was probably less than a quarter of a mile even out of Raymond. So it's really close. And what so far has the response been like from state and federal officials? Minnesota Governor Tim Walz was at the derailment site today. He said he was briefed earlier by U.S. Transportation Secretary Buttigieg. Walz brought several high-level members of his administration to south, south central Minnesota. The governor thanked the evacuated residents who were sheltering in a nearby town for their cooperation and patience. He also thanked all the first responders who rushed to the scene, including many from neighboring communities. I think the biggest thing that probably everyone who pulled up on that saw was the number of first responders that were there and the number of different community names that were on those trucks. And so the first thing is, is that I I think it's very reassuring. I think Minnesotans feel this way. I certainly do is when something happens, your neighbors are there. And what else did we hear from Minnesota Governor Walls today? Well, interestingly, he said that the cars that derailed that contained ethanol were state-of-the-art what are called 117Js. They're designed just for this kind of situation. They're much less likely to explode than conventional tanker cars if they leave the tracks because they have reinforced steel walls. So although ethanol is leaking and burning, public safety officials are not as concerned about the possibility of explosions as they otherwise would be right now. And... Do we know anything at this time about what caused this derailment? Burlington Northern Santa Fe President and CEO Katie Farmer, who was on the scene here too, said it's too early to say what happened. First and foremost, they're dealing with the fire and the cleanup. 
Farmer did, though, address the issue of rail safety in light of recent high-profile derailments, including the one in Ohio last month. Certainly, I think we're hearing more about derailments in the wake of um, East Palestine. Um, I can tell you what the statistics are, and that is 99.99% of all hazardous commodities get to destination without incident. So take us back to the city of Raymond. What about them? What's next for people there? Well, a team from the National Transportation Safety Board is on the way to begin their investigation. The railroad has to wait for the NTSB to give it the all clear to begin putting out what's left of the fire. They say they're going to use a foam product to do that. They say the foam will not pose any environmental threats, such as polluting the groundwater here. After they put the fires out, they'll begin the cleanup, and it's unclear how long that take or when we'll know exactly what happened. Reporter Mark Zadeklik from Minnesota Public Radio News. Mark, thank you. You're very welcome. It was a much-anticipated and somewhat subdued homecoming today for Brazil's far-right former president. To cheers of the captain is back, the former army captain, Jair Bolsonaro, was warmly greeted by party faithful and supporters in the capital, Brasilia. Bolsonaro has spent the last three months in Florida in self-imposed exile, Back home now, he faces several investigations, including some that could send him to prison. We're joined now by NPR South America correspondent Kerry Kahn in Rio de Janeiro. Hey, Kerry. Hi. Were there big crowds out to greet Bolsonaro this morning? Uh, not that big. At the airport, there was a good turnout of supporters. They're always carrying Brazilian flags, and they wear soccer jerseys with the green and yellow colors of Bolsonaro's uh, Nationalist Party. He, however, didn't get to see the crowd, and he was ushered out a side entrance. He got into a small convoy of vehicles and then whisked away to his Liberal Party headquarters. Oh, so he got taken out the side door, huh? Yes. What has he said today? He waved to a crowd that was gathering outside the party headquarters, but he didn't speak there. Once inside, some short videos and pictures were tweeted out. In this short video that I'm going to play for you, he's complaining about the lack of security given to him, especially that there were no bulletproof vehicles. He says that when he was in office, he never persecuted an ex-president and always granted everything that they had asked for. He says that this lack of security detail today, that's what he called it, was the government sending him a signal. And while Bolsonaro is clearly here taking swipes at the new government, it is important just to say that he was attacked on the campaign trail back in 2018. He was stabbed in the stomach and he still suffers complications from that assault. Kerry, what does Bolsonaro's return today tell us about the political climate in Brazil um, and his relations with the new government of President uh, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva? The climate here is tense. It's very polarized. Those elections last October were very, very close and contentious. Bolsonaro never conceded defeat, and he still likes to question, you know, without providing any evidence, of Brazil's electoral system, which he says is just vulnerable to fraud. Bolsonaro is also facing several investigations in Brazil here. Some are even criminal. Electoral officials have launched probes, too, over his alleged uh, dissemination of fake news and whether he incited supporters to attack the Capitol on January 8th. And such electoral violations could bar him from running for office in the future. And just recently, there were some headline-grabbing inquiries into his mishandling of jewels worth Mm. millions of dollars that he got as a gift from Saudi Arabia. So there was a lot of speculation today about whether he would be arrested upon his return. 
Well, now that he is back and and not arrested, uh, what are people saying about his far-right nationalist movement and its future in Brazil? Of course, it all depends on who you ask. I talked to Marcio Coimbra from the Economic Freedom Foundation. It's a conservative free market group. And he says Brazil's right is tacking more to the middle now. Bolsonaro is going to be an important player, but not the main player on the Brazilian right. There are new names that will be able to lead much more than Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro's base, however, stands firmly behind him, but his nationalist movement was discredited greatly since uh, January 8th and the attacks on the Capitol back then by hundreds of his supporters. And then there's Bolsonaro himself. He's been giving mixed messages about what his role will be. He talks about being more of like an elder advisor now that he's back in Brazil. NPR's Kerry Khan in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you. You're welcome. This is 90.9 WBUR. On Wall Street, markets closed higher for a second straight day today. The Dow picked up more than four-tenths of a percent. S&P gained more than a half percent. And the Nasdaq rose nearly three-quarters of a percent. Business news comes up on Marketplace at 6.30. In the forecast, a clear and cold night tonight, still on the windy side, about 28 degrees. And for tomorrow, sunshine for the first part of the day, clouds for the second half, maybe some showers in the late afternoon, just under 50 degrees tomorrow. And then could have a rainy day coming up on Saturday, 63 degrees. Sunday should be sunny, chilly though, right about 46. It is 39 degrees now in Boston at 520. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This update from Fenway Park, by the way, opening day, the Red Sox have been cutting away at the Orioles' lead. It's now 10-8 to 8 Orioles in the ninth inning at Fenway That's Park. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. We are optimistic here, as always, in Boston. And we are hoping that you will take advantage of the fact that we are so optimistic right now. We're counting on you to make the phone call at WBUR, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And help us on our way to evening out our budget so we can be as strong as possible to cover the news in the year to come. We can be as strong as your dollars let us be because we count on you more than any other entity for the vast majority of our operating budget. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Martha Biebinger. That is how the partnership works. We don't send any bills. We don't put up paywalls. We just open the mics four or five times a year and say, hey, folks, it's time for us to pay the bills. Do what you can. Nobody pays attention to how much you give. (laughs) Your listening isn't directed by that in any way. The amount of information you get on WBUR.org, podcasts, events. I mean, it's on and on, and it's all here for free. It is here for free because of those of you who pick up the phone or go online and make your contributions. It's a fabulous model. We love working under it. We want to keep it going, and we can, with your call 
or your online contribution now at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Yeah, it's nice to know that it is here at your fingertips. And the truth, of course, is that everything that we put on the air comes at a cost. There is no greater expense than news when you listen to the radio. Because you listen for the news on WBUR, we hope that you understand that and will do your part. We don't have a paywall. We're not saying you have to give X amount of money in order to listen. You can listen anytime you want for free. We know a lot of people cannot contribute right now, and we hope you'll come back when you can, but continue to listen to us. For those who are in a position to be able to afford a contribution, if you can do $10 a month, if you can make it $25 a month, $100 a month for some people, or a one-time gift. I bet there are some people listening out there who could make a gift right now of $2,500. Uh, or thereabouts. We are grateful for any contribution to WBUR because that gives us the knowledge that you understand how we operate. This is our funding model, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And how about on this gorgeous spring day, for a pitch, for a pledge of $12 a month, we will send you a $50 gift card to Weston Nurseries, three locations, Hopkinton, Chelmsford, uh, well, sorry, this must be four locations, Hopkinton, Chelmsford, Hingham, and Marlboro. So hopefully one near you, and hopefully a place where you can find that perfect plant for maybe your desk, if you're working from home a lot, or something to make you excited when you walk up to the front door. And we're going to hear just for a minute here from Peter Mezet, who is the president of Weston Nurseries, because he says the expertise his team has to offer you is just as important as the products they sell. We want people to know that they came to the right place. So they're going to get accurate information, knowledgeable information about living things, plants, trees, shrubs, perennials, annuals, as well as garden-related products to maintain your garden and hardscape. You know, stone now, we're into that too. That's accurate, accurate for this region. I kill houseplants on a regular basis, Lisa. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I could use a consultant. I might need somebody to actually come to my house and figure out why I what I do wrong. But anyway, we've got experts there at Western Nurseries. Your donation of twelve dollars a month will get you a fifty dollar gift card and a very nice start when you walk in the door. Just got the word that the Red Sox lost today, opening day at Fenway Park to Baltimore. But you know what the score was, Martha? 10 to 9. Sox had come back from, I think, a 10 to 2 deficit earlier on. That's pretty amazing. Anthony Brooks is there, and I know we're going to be getting the whole story from him. That's... It's hard, but it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be. So anyway. At least I said that's hard. Like they put their heart into it. Yeah, absolutely. They put their heart into it for sure. So I want you know you can count on WBUR and Anthony Brooks to bring you the story when uh, he gets back from the ballpark. So right now we have our own business to attend to, and we hope that you appreciate what you do here on WBUR day in, day out. What you hear at WBUR.org, what you read there, the podcasts uh, that we put out, the events that we have at City Space. It's all a piece of this whole enterprise. Please help keep us strong with your phone call right now, 1-800-909-9287, or go online at WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, businesses can invite candidates to apply 
then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This week, Kentucky joined at least 10 other states this year in passing bills restricting the rights of transgender youth. Some say Kentucky's is one of the most sweeping anti-trans bills in the country. A warning, this story contains a discussion of suicide. Here's Louisville Public Media's Divya Karthikeyan. Kentucky State Senator Karen Berg had to deal with the most devastating thing a mother could imagine. In December last year, Berg's transgender son, Henry Berg Brousseau, died by suicide. He was just 24 and a prominent LGBTQ rights activist who inspired his mother to run for office. This is the last thing my child wrote. She's reading out a press release Henry wrote for the human rights campaign 14 hours before he ended his life. We must all work to repudiate anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric and falsehoods in the strongest possible terms because our lives are quite literally on the line. And he went home, and he went out, and he killed himself. Two weeks later, Berg was awash with grief. But she kept her chin up and walked into the Senate chamber, dreading that her legislature, like so many others, would face multiple bills to restrict the rights of LGBTQ people. And I just quietly said, please, let's not politicize this, this session. Please, let's don't go down there. More than two months later, she watched her Republican colleagues, one by one, vote to override a veto on Senate Bill 150, which bans all gender-affirming medical care for trans youth in Kentucky. For public schools, it restricts which bathrooms students can use, puts limits on discussing gender and sexuality. It also allows teachers to refer to students by their gender assigned at birth. It's exactly what her son Henry fought against happening. Woke ideologies are creating barriers to students' education. That's Republican Senator Max Wise talking on the Senate floor. He took the lead on anti-trans legislation this session, starting by targeting the state's progressive education commissioner, because he'd issued guidance telling teachers to use kids' preferred pronouns. Wise is also running for lieutenant governor. And it's time for our governor to listen to parents instead of a commissioner who thinks that teachers should find another profession if they don't subscribe to his woke ideology. The bill gradually morphed into a broader and bigger anti-trans bill, including the ban on gender-affirming medical treatments, and not everyone in the Republican caucus was on board. In the midst of last-minute lobbying and pressure from interest groups, members who were on the fence voted yes, but one Republican pushed back. Going against your entire caucus is a very uncomfortable place to be. That's Senator Danny Carroll. He had introduced an amendment that would have exempted puberty blockers and gave doctors more discretion, but it didn't have the Senate's approval. My fear and my no vote is for those kids that are being left out, those kids that may be contemplating suicide. Kentucky's first openly trans-elected official, Rebecca Blankenship, says this is the current obsession among most Republicans, but for the transgender community... For us, this is Frankenstein. They've created something that is so far beyond their control, and they are no longer able to do anything but vote yes, vote yes, vote yes to everything. 
But when Blankenship saw not just activists, but hundreds of Kentuckians rallying in support of trans rights at the state capitol, she knew the next generation will keep fighting for people like her. Trans people are going to have to reveal ourselves and be really vulnerable because otherwise there will be other people to define us. For NPR News, I'm Divya Kartikeyan in Louisville, Kentucky. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You're listening to All Things Considered. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Opening April 1st, WorcesterArt.org. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Kentucky, Army officials say nine soldiers were killed last night in a crash involving two Black Hawk medical evacuation helicopters during a routine training exercise. Officials at Fort Campbell Army Base near Kentucky's border with Tennessee say investigators are on scene today trying to determine a cause for the accident. While families of the soldiers who were on board are being notified, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir says the soldiers will be mourned, but never forgotten for their service and sacrifice. We are blessed to live in the freest country in the history of planet Earth, but we must remember that that freedom relies on those who are willing to serve, some of which pay the ultimate price. The crew members were part of the 101st Airborne Division out of Fort Campbell Army Base in Kentucky. A new CDC report shows gun violence increased during the coronavirus pandemic and it continues to rise. NPR's Ping Huang has more on the study from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. During the pandemic, deaths by gun violence reached rates that had not been seen since the early 1990s. The number of gunshot cases seen at emergency departments climbed steadily from March 2020 through the first months of the pandemic. They spiked that May, a time when the Black Lives Matter protests and counter-protests were taking off. Even today, the number of gun injuries remains 20% higher than it was pre-pandemic. Gun injuries are highest among 15 to 24-year-olds, but the biggest recent increases come in children 14 and younger. For example, one children's hospital in Queens, New York, went from seeing fewer than 10 cases annually to treating more than 30 kids with gunshot wounds last year. Ping Huang, NPR News. Stocks finished higher for a second day on Wall Street. The tech-heavy Nasdaq up three-quarters of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Opening day for the Red Sox did not go the way Boston fans had hoped. The Sox lost 10-9 to to the Baltimore Orioles this afternoon at Fenway. And that's where WBUR's Anthony Brooks is right now. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Lisa. Good to hear you. So the Sox made things pretty interesting in the ninth inning, didn't they? Yeah, they did indeed. I mean, all afternoon, it looked like a lost cause for the Red Sox. Corey Kluber, the former Cy Young winning pitcher, struggled through three and a third innings, and the Red Sox trailed for the entire game. At one point, they were down 10-4, to four, but they scored in the eighth inning and then scored three runs in the ninth. They came within one run of tying the game with a winning run at the plate. 
Lots of excitement at Fenway, finally. Uh, but, uh, but Adam Duvall struck out, and the Sox lost 10-9 on what turned out to be a pretty exciting home opener uh, on a very frigid day. Uh, exciting game, uh, disappointing perhaps that the Red Sox lost, but I think the, the excitement at the end of the ninth inning uh, let, let everyone sort of go home with the sense of, you know, this is what it's all about. So what were things like in the stands? What did, what did fans say? Well, you know, it's opening day. It's always a special time. Every team has a chance to win. It's a sign of spring. It's a sign of new beginnings. And I think that was in the air at Fenway Park. Nobody is picking the Red Sox uh, as a team that's going to dominate uh, this league. Uh, you know, they've got a couple of stars like Rafael Devers. Um, uh, they're, they're, but, uh, you know, for the most part, this is a, a team that's going to be counting on uh, some veterans who are well past their prime and a collection of young folks who have to prove themselves. Um, still, there is a feeling that this could be an interesting team to watch and they could make things interesting. And that was sort of the, that was the takeaway from today's game. They almost won in a sort of dramatic come from behind uh, way. They came very close and that was exciting. If they play the whole season like that, maybe some interesting things will happen. So there's a new pitch clock uh, that I wonder if it made any difference. And maybe you can explain what the new pitch clock is all about. Right. Well, the pitch clock is part of a series of rules designed to speed up the game. And basically, when the pitcher gets the ball back, he's got 20 seconds to throw it uh, to, to the catcher. And, and there's a limit on how many times he can throw over to first base. And, and, and then there's some other rules as well. And this is to deal with the boredom factor. And, uh, you know, the average spring training game was about a half hour quicker, about 26 minutes quicker. It didn't really work out that way today because the Sox allowed so many walks. There were pitching changes. So this was a game, I don't know the official time, but I believe it went over three hours uh, at least. Um, we'll confirm that. But I believe this was a long game because of all the pitching changes. But, um, you know, I heard support in the stands for this uh, effort to speed up the rhythm of the game. I also heard people say, no, it's a mistake. You know, baseball is traditionally the way it is. And uh, if it takes a long time to play, that's part of the game. And, that, and we should leave the rules the way they are. Just another thing to argue about. Looking forward to it. Uh, WBR's yeah. Anthony Brooks opening day at Fenway Park. The Red Sox lost to the Baltimore Orioles 10-9. to Anthony, thank you so much. My pleasure, Lisa. The state's highest court is siding with Boston in its long-running battle with public safety unions over the city's COVID vaccine mandate. As WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, today's decision clears the way for future vaccine mandates. Three unions representing police and firefighters sued to block Boston's COVID vaccine mandate last year, and an appeals court judge agreed to pause it. Now, the Supreme Judicial Court is throwing out that decision, saying the city was acting to protect public safety. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu welcomed the ruling, saying it's clear the city, quote, continues to have full authority to act in the interest of public health. Wu did not say if the city will actually enforce the mandate. Her administration recently struck agreements with multiple public safety unions not to discipline unvaccinated police or firefighters. An attorney for the firefighters union says today's decision, quote, in no way impacts that agreement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. 40 degrees in the Boston area overnight tonight. Look for clear, starlit skies. Temperatures just about 30 degrees. And then for tomorrow, should be cloudy for the most part. Could have rain tomorrow afternoon with high temperatures about 48 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 537. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, 
working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. We are following another low point for U.S.-Russia relations in this moment. Russia has jailed an American reporter for The Wall Street Journal on charges of espionage. And the U.S. is demanding consular access and answers. We're joined now by NPR's Michelle Kellerman to learn more about this case. First, Michelle, just what can you tell us about this arrest? Yeah, so um, Evan Gershkovich was arrested in Yekaterinburg. It's an industrial city in the Urals. The Russians say he was caught red-handed trying to gather information about a company in the military-industrial complex. He was reportedly working on stories about a tank factory in the area and a Russian mercenary group. Um, The Wall Street Journal vehemently denies he was involved in espionage. And White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre says President Biden has been briefed on the case, which she described this way. This espionage charges are ridiculous. The targeting of American citizens by Russian government is unacceptable. We condemn the detention of Mr. Gerskovich in the strongest in the strongest terms. And that was repeated at the State Department, which says it's trying to get consular access to him. Michelle, what else do we know about this reporter and his recent work? So he's 31 years old. He joined the Wall Street Journal last year, but he's been in Moscow um, since 2017, working first for the Moscow Times, an English language paper, and then the AFP, the French news agency. And just this week, he co-authored a piece about how sanctions are really starting to have an impact um, in Russia. It was called How Russia's Economy is Starting to Come Undone. Hmm. So it sounds like even though the Russians accuse him of espionage, they might also be unhappy with his reporting. Michelle, what appears to be the Russian play here? It's really hard to know this early. I mean, maybe they're looking for a prisoner swap. Hmm. The U.S. traded a Russian arms dealer for American basketball star Brittany Griner last year. Um, The U.S. is still trying to get Paul Whelan out of Russia. And a U.S. court recently indicted a suspected Russian spy. So, you know, maybe Russia's looking for a new prisoner swap, or it might just be sending a signal to journalists. I talked about this today with Olga Oliker. She's an analyst with the International Crisis Group, and here's what she had to say. It is a terrifying signal on press freedom, on the ability for journalists to work in Russia, whether they are Russian or Western, um, and certainly willingness to continue to pick fights with uh, with Western countries. You know, Juana, Russia's war in Ukraine is not going well. Russia blames the West for arming Ukraine with increasingly sophisticated weapons. And while Russia is clearly unhappy with that, Oliker says the Kremlin is also settling in for a long war, and it sees some domestic benefits from this. It justifies the crackdowns and the limitations on free speech and all of these things that were certainly in the works before the full-scale invasion, but which have accelerated, um, and I really would say transformed Russia over the course of the last year. Last year, Russia put in place some draconian measures to limit reporters um, for what they could say about the war, but this espionage case is really taking it to a new level. In the few seconds we have left, um, is the State Department telling journalists in Russia to leave? 
Well, it's telling all Americans living or traveling to Russia to leave, but the White House was careful not to give any specific guidance to journalists, saying they know they need to do a job. NPR's Michelle, Michelle Kellerman, thank you. Thank you. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. This news just in. A lawyer for Donald Trump says he's been told that the former president has been indicted on charges that involve payments made during the 2016 presidential campaign to silence claims of an extramarital sexual encounter. This is the first ever criminal case against a former U.S. president and a jolt to Donald Trump's bid to retake the White House in 2024. Trump has insisted he did absolutely nothing wrong. He and his lawyers have said the charges are politically motivated and have suggested that he was a victim of extortion. Once again, the Associated Press is reporting Donald Trump's lawyer says he's been told of a New York indictment making Donald Trump the first former U.S. president charged with a crime. NPR is working on the story right now. We will hear more as soon as the information becomes available. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. This is WBUR. We are in the midst of our fund drive, and we're going to break, of course, for any news that comes out about Donald Trump's apparent indictment. Um, That's the word that just came out a while ago from the Associated Press. CNN is now reporting on it, and we'll be hearing from National Public Radio as well. First, we need to make sure that we have the support that we need from your listening habits, but also from your contributions to WBUR during our fund drives to keep the news coming, to keep us responding to breaking news like this, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We're taking just a minute and a half here to ask you for your support to make sure that we can keep doing what it takes in these moments to bring you the best, most vetted, most thoroughly analyzed news coverage of this historic moment that we can. 1-800-909-9287. You can make a contribution very quickly on WBUR.org. We can't do this without you. We are bringing you news, international, national news, local news, breaking news, news that comes in the form of of, uh, standback stories, analysis. You know you're going to be hearing a lot of analysis on this. In fact, when you listen tonight and when you listen to Morning Edition tomorrow, you're going to be having lots of questions answered, questions you hadn't even thought of perhaps answered as well, because this is a historic event. Um, as we as we hear more about it right now, once again, a lawyer for Donald Trump said today he's been told the former president has been indicted in New York on charges involving payments made to his uh, during his 2016 presidential campaign to silence claims of an extramarital sexual encounter. So stories like this are the ones that we respond to and you listen to WBUR4 so you can get the full story. That kind of loyalty you have to us is something that we're asking you to put a dollar figure on right now. If you can give $10 a month, if you can give $15 a month, $20 a month, we would so much appreciate it. So become a sustainer as we go back to the news right now. We're hoping that you will make the phone call, support the station that is here for you 24-7 with breaking news like this, with stories that we know that you're counting on WBUR and NPR to provide details on for you. So that's worth something to you. Make the call, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. We're counting on you. Thanks a lot.
WBUR supporters include the Health and Wellness Spring Expo in Waltham this Sunday, featuring massage, acupuncture, and other mini treatments. Learn more at healthandwellnessshow.net. Pharmacies looted by Russian soldiers, landmines placed in medical facilities, residents unable to leave their street for medical treatment. These are some of the awful scenarios that teams from Doctors Without Borders, MSF, found after going into areas liberated by Ukrainian forces in the country's east and south. Medical teams from the organization have treated some 11,000 patients in that region since November and published a report this month. Here to talk about that is Christopher Stokes. He leads the Doctors Without Borders operation in Ukraine. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hello. Thanks. You and your teams went into the areas in eastern and southern Ukraine uh, after they were won back by Ukrainian forces. These were areas that were under Russian occupation for months. Can, can you describe what you found? What we saw was widespread destruction because some of these places had been fought over by both sides, actually. Then what we noticed is within the destruction, nearly all the health facilities were destroyed. And some were even looted, right down to window frames, basically. Hmm. So for the population who managed to survive during this period, basically there was nearly no access to healthcare for months. And so talk about how hard it is to provide medical treatment in conditions like these once you do arrive. Well, actually, one of the main problems you have is just practical. Where do you consult patients? So you really have to pitch up wherever you can find. In some villages and towns, we couldn't find a single structure that was intact. So we actually brought in containers and we did uh, medical consultations from those containers. In other places, we went into private homes and we sort of, people would come into these private homes and we do consultations from, you know, living rooms and, and, and front rooms, basically. Your teams have treated thousands of people in these areas since November. Uh, how much of what you're seeing, how many of the injuries or the health conditions that you're treating are, are directly related to the war? Well, actually, it's, um, it's a complex picture. So what you have is you have some directly related to the war. One village we were driving through, uh, he was very lucky. A man was in the field behind his house and he picked up a, an object and it was a mine and it blew off and it blew up his hand. And we just happened to be driving through and we were able to bring him back. Or you also have an older population, perhaps with um, pre-existing uh, medical conditions. So you have a lot of cardiovascular hypertension, diabetes, etc. As you'd expect to find in a population where 65% of our consultations are for, for older, older patients. And one of the problems they face is that they didn't have access to medicine for, for months, basically. They ran out of supplies. One of the details in your report, which was just you know horrifying, was members of your team's finding landmines inside medical facilities, clinics, and and hospitals. How are these landmines ending up in hospitals? That's something that we we also find quite hard to explain and understand because I've worked in in conflict areas for decades actually, and um, it's not something you usually see. So at least on three different occasions, three different medical structures, we came across landmines. And then when you link that to the looting, the general destruction, yeah, the, the accessibility of healthcare for this population and, and the message it sends to them as well was, was really shocking. Uh, Doctors Without Borders, Christopher, has spent a lot of time in war-torn areas, and you specifically have. How does what you're mm-hmm. seeing in Ukraine compare to other places like Angola, uh, Kosovo, Rwanda that you have worked in? 
yeah, each each are different. One of the specificities of Ukraine is the level of destruction. And that means that over a, a front line of around 600 miles, there is no town or village that hasn't been damaged. And some have been practically erased from the map. And that's something you don't usually see. You can see it in one or two places, but here it's it's over hundreds of miles. I've been speaking with Christopher Stokes in Kyiv. He leads the Doctors Without Borders operation in Ukraine. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. Bye. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The movie A Thousand and One tells a tale of fierce maternal love under trying circumstances. It won the jury prize at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Critic Bob Mandelo says it's sharply observed. Brooklyn in the 1990s, 23-year-old Inez, who meets the world with swagger to spare, has just been released from Rikers Island when she spots her six-year-old, Terry, who entered foster care when she went to jail. Just let me see your eyes so I know you're not mad at me. I'm staying out of trouble this time. Terry uses his friends as cover, and Inez doesn't press. But a bit later, she learns that he's in the hospital after jumping out a window at his foster home. She visits him, and this time he's more receptive, though his jumping means his situation will likely change. I think they're going to move you. I don't know where yet, but I'll see you soon. When? I don't know yet. Why keep believing me? Inez sees the pain in his gaze and makes the sort of snap decision that's landed her in trouble before. Would it make you feel better if you came to stay with me? Yeah. In seconds, they're fugitives, walking out of the hospital, couch surfing to avoid social services, then getting a cheap Harlem rental where Inez gives Terry a new name, new clothes, and when he presses... Where's my dad at? He's gone. But you wouldn't like them anyway. I got somebody else in mind. A new father. Terry, I want you to meet Lucky. Lucky's going to be moving in with us. She also enrolls him in school, where with her always pushing him to achieve what she didn't, he thrives. Yes, she can be abrasive, and with Lucky, combative. I'm not about to sit here and argue with you. That's real easy for you to say, because you get to be the same while I'm stuck here fighting these wars all by myself. Still, Inez is a devoted, protective mom. The fact that she's kidnapped a ward of the state doesn't go away, but as the years pass, Terry, played by three actors at different ages, flourishes to the point that a school guidance counselor is urging him to dream big. Have you thought about MIT, Harvard? Applications for college, of course, will require documents, a birth certificate, say, that could expose their secret. Inez, who struts with anxiety-tinged bravado, as played by recording artist-turned-actor Tiana Taylor, hopes to finesse that, but first-time writer-director A.V. Rockwell shows her hemmed in, increasingly embattled. I go to war for you, you know that? Against this whole city, but they're not breaking us up this time. As that line hints, a gentrifying 1990s New York is an active character in 1001. The era's racial profiling and -and stop-and-frisk policies make Terry's walk home from school a risk-filled gauntlet. Inez deals with landlords intent on pushing families of color from Harlem's safe haven, and when she looks at her son, she feels she's failing. Damaged people don't know how to love, she laments, but as Lucky points out, she and Terry are both damaged. Teenagers hate everybody, but I do sense a little void in them. First couple years of his life, he ain't had nobody. Kids still walking around here with a broken heart. 
compelling as all this is, the filmmaker is building to a startling last-minute reveal that will have you rethinking every sacrifice Inez has made. Character portraits just don't come sharper than a thousand and one. Portraits of their eras this sharp? More like one in a thousand. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. News has just come in that, excuse me, that Donald Trump's lawyer, excuse me, news has just come in that Donald Trump's lawyer says he's been told of a New York indictment that makes Trump the first former U.S. president to be charged with a crime. We're hearing this from the Associated Press and some other sources that a New York grand jury has voted to indict Donald Trump. We have details just as soon as they become available. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. want to take a minute to tell you a little bit more about this uh, as we have more information about the apparent indictment of Donald Trump by a New York grand jury. We will let you know that information. And the fundraising that we're doing right now, that we're engaged in right now, does not get in the way of a second of that. While we have this moment, while we're waiting to learn more, we want to amplify that this is the kind of news that WBUR brings to you with your funding. I'm Lisa Mullins. With me in the studio right now, Martha Biebinger and Jay Clayton. Lisa, we don't have the specific charges. They have not been made public at this point. We do know that the former president has insisted he did absolutely nothing wrong. He says he was a victim of extortion. We're going to have more details from NPR as soon as we get them. one 800 909 9287 is the number you call to do your part to help make sure we're on top of this story. We remain your trusted news source as we always are. In this second day of our fundraiser, you know, as this news breaks and unfolds, we will not let the fundraiser get in the way of this. As soon as there is more information, we're going to bring it to you no matter what that takes. We're taking just this moment to remind you, though, that this is what it takes to bring it to you is listener support. It is the largest share of funding here at WBUR. So as we are waiting for more news, and you are too, you know that the reason that you turn to WBUR is because you're going to get reliable news. You're going to get facts. You're going to get context. And we are able to bring that to you with our partners at NPR because of listener support. So please take a minute and give 10 or $20 a month or whatever is comfortable for you. And as soon as we have more information, we're going to get it right to you. The fundraiser will not get in the way of that, but we just need to take this moment while we have it to ask you to give what you can. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. It's really important that you give whatever you can because we cannot bring you stories, whether they be stories that we've been uh, working on for quite some time or stories that are just breaking. We can't bring them to you without your pledge of support, without your help. We rely on you 
uh, more than we rely on any other source of funding right now. So the number, once again, is 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. As soon as we have more information, as Jay and Martha were saying, uh, about this apparent indictment of Donald Trump by a New York grand jury, we will bring it to you. NPR uh, has been following this for quite some time. They're working their sources right now, and we expect certainly tonight and also tomorrow to have this um, information as it unfolds from many angles, political angle, historical angle, social angle. As you know, Donald Trump has announced his bid to run for the White House again in 2024. We'll hear what this criminal case against the former president does to his political hopes. We don't know what the charges are right now. What we do know is that the lawyer for Donald Trump told the Associated Press that he has been told that a grand jury has been meeting for months and has voted to indict Trump. And again, the specific charges have not immediately been made available. While we're waiting to hear more, we want to tell you how important it is that you support the news that we bring to you as in fundraisers such as this one. So we'll give you the number once again, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. This news comes to you with your funding. And as soon as we have more information, we're going to bring it right to you. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. We'll have a lot more on this, the first ever criminal case against a former U.S. president. More on, as Lisa said, the political implications. More certainly from Trump and associates on this investigation that he has repeatedly attacked on his possible arrest if he has to surrender to authorities soon. We are working every possible angle of this story for you because that's what you expect of us. What we expect is that you're here to support that coverage with uh, with a call to 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. In these moments, our fundraising will take a backseat, of course, to our news coverage. That's what you expect. That's what we will deliver. We just want to take this moment while we have it, while we're waiting for the latest news to bring it to you to ask you for your support at WBUR.org or at 1-800-909-9287. We're going to bring you every bit of the coverage that we have as it unfolds and becomes available to us. The fundraiser will not, of course, get in the way of that. But we, as we're waiting for more, we hope you will take a minute right now and give what you can to support this coverage and to support everything that you get and count on from WBUR. Listener support is the heart and soul of all of it. So please give what you can at WBUR.org or at 1-800-909-9287. Thanks very much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from the Sci Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at scisimsfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal judge in Texas has blocked provisions of the Affordable Care Act that require health insurers to provide a wide range of free preventive care services, including screenings for lung cancer and skin cancer. Senator's Maria Godoy reports the ruling applies nationwide. In his ruling, U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor struck down many recommendations issued by a government task force that determines which preventive care treatments must be covered under Obamacare at no cost to patients. The judge has previously ruled that the panel itself is unconstitutional. The judge also invalidated a mandate that employers and insurers cover HIV prevention drugs for free. The ruling could jeopardize free access to some preventive services for millions of Americans. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Residents of Raymond, Minnesota are heading back to their homes today after a train derailment and fire-forced evacuations of the small town west of Minneapolis this morning. Minnesota Public Radio's Tim Nelson has more. 22 cars on a BNSF train carrying ethanol and corn syrup derailed and piled up into a heap of twisted wreckage about 1 a.m., The alcohol-based fuel being transported in tank cars caught fire, and witnesses said flames were three stories high. Rene Rodriguez and his family were among those evacuated, and he said even though he worked around railroads, the danger felt more acute after the derailment. We've had incidents like this nationwide, so, you know, it's, it's a lingering thought we have of what repercussions could be caused because of these incidents. Evacuation orders have been lifted. No injuries have been reported, and the National Transportation Safety Board is sending investigators to look for a cause. For NPR News, I'm Tim Nelson in St. Paul. The economy grew slightly more slowly at the end of last year than previously thought. NPR Scott Horsley reports on the new numbers from the Commerce Department. Revised figures from the Commerce Department show the U.S. economy grew at an annual rate of 2.6 percent in the final months of 2022. That's down slightly from the government's earlier estimate of 2.7 percent. The downward revision reflects somewhat weaker exports and consumer spending in the fourth quarter. More recent spending figures for the month of February are due out tomorrow, along with a new reading on February's inflation rate. New claims for unemployment benefits ticked up a bit last week as just under 200,000 people applied for aid. That's still low by historical standards, suggesting that despite some high-profile layoffs, the U.S. job market remains tight. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On the heels of the failure of a couple of U.S. banks, President Biden is calling for independent regulatory groups to impose tighter controls on the banking system. Banks holding more than $100 billion in assets are being asked to hold more capital. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 141 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A former Boston police officer is under arrest in connection with the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol two years ago. The FBI arrested 52-year-old Joseph Fisher at his Plymouth home this morning. He's facing a felony charge of assaulting a law enforcement officer. Fisher retired from Boston police in 2016. Massachusetts House Speaker Ron Mariano says the House is working to introduce a slate of major tax reforms soon. Speaking to the Greater Boston Chamber, of Commerce today. Mariano hinted the House plan could include changes to the estate tax. He did not disclose any details. 
Boston residents can now pursue an associate's degree or certificate program at certain institutions without paying tuition. As WBR's Max Larkin reports, the city today expanded its program that covers the cost to attend one of six local institutions. Community college enrollment is down statewide, as many people take jobs right out of high school. Boston is trying to nudge them back towards seeking a degree. The city's tuition-free program is now open to all residents, regardless of age, income, or immigration status. That's thanks to a $4 million federal investment. Mayor Michelle Wu says the program has already shown its value. These young people earn more credits, enjoy higher employment rates, and report higher earnings. So we know and we've seen that it works. The program also covers $250 a semester for college-related expenses and up to $2,500 of outstanding debt. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. A new supplemental budget extends a number of pandemic-era policies in Massachusetts. Governor Healy signed the $389 million spending package yesterday. It gives permission for town meetings and other public bodies to meet remotely for another two years. It also lets outdoor dining and the sale of takeout cocktails continue through March of next year. Red Sox scored nine runs at Fenway, but Baltimore scored 10. So the Sox lost their regular season opener. Game two is tomorrow. Tonight, clear and cold. Windy, too, down about 28 degrees. For tomorrow, sunshine early, then clouds later. Maybe some spring showers in the late afternoon. Highs about 48 degrees. Still 40 degrees now in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Family and friends gathered yesterday to remember Ivo Otieno, the 28-year-old black man killed in custody at a Virginia psychiatric hospital earlier this month. The Reverend Al Sharpton, by now a familiar voice at the funerals of black men killed in police custody, delivered the eulogy. And he called for new standards and laws regarding how law enforcement interacts with people with mental illness. This boy wasn't hurting nobody. He had a sickness and illness, and if you were not equipped or trained to deal with the illness, then you should not have showed up to answer the call. The Reverend Al Sharpton joins me now. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. You delivered a striking eulogy for Ivo Otieno yesterday, and I'd like to begin by asking you, did you have the opportunity to spend some time before delivering that eulogy with his family? What did you learn about him? I did talk with his mother and his brother, and uh, they told me that he was a very artistic, wanted to build a record company. We played a video during the services of where he had done a rap song, and that he was one that was very honest and open about his mental health illness, but that he was not going to let that debilitate him. They kept asking me to make sure I emphasized that. I mean, this is a family that, understandably so, is still grieving and grappling with loss. But I wonder, in your conversations, have they expressed to you what they hope might come of this moment and this tragic loss? Are there any changes that they hope to see? Yes. uh, The mother, Carolyn, said she would like to see a law that would deal with how you handle 
the question of mental illness, uh, where law enforcement doesn't necessarily kick in, but it kicks in with people that are trained in the medical health field. So I, uh, we are stressing that, and, and I called on that yesterday. Let's remember that Governor uh, Yumkin is being touted by some to be a presidential candidate, and so we called on him to come forward and deal with the possibility of a law to deal with all of this. That's right. You called on Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia by name. And we should note he has not yet declared that he would run for president. But I'm curious in this moment of mourning, but also a moment that you used as a call to action, why specifically shine a light on Governor Youngkin there in Virginia? Because health services is under the auspices of the governor. And as he tries to build a national reputation, he needs to deal with a real tragedy right there in Virginia. How he operates on this tragedy will tell those of us around the country a lot about him. You're talking about an unarmed, non-threatening young black man who was handcuffed and shackled while these people piled on him to where they literally choked the life out of him. The governor ought to respond with more than sympathy. He ought to respond with some action legislation where this can't happen again. Reverend Sharpton, over the years, you have spent time speaking with and ministering to so many families like this one that find themselves thrust into a national spotlight that they did not ask for after their loved ones were killed in encounters with law enforcement. Do you give them advice on just how to survive and reckon with the place that they find themselves in. But we try to give them uh, full services because I think that people don't realize nobody signed up to be the next victim or the next family member of a victim. I chose to do what I do and been doing it all my life. They didn't choose this. They have no experience. They have no media training. They don't know how they vet uh, the different people coming to them and how you separate those that are just coming to get attention or those that are really going to stay with the family, help the family. I am talking to families now uh, that I've worked on their situations 30 years ago, and the media is gone, and then sometimes the community has calmed down, but they will never be the same. Though the details of these cases, these incidents are different, and every person is different, you have been in this position of speaking with these families, of giving eulogies like the one you gave this week, time and time again for people including George Floyd in Minneapolis, just recently, Tyree Nichols in Memphis. It's an unfortunate long list. And I'd like to ask you, why do you feel it is so important to keep standing at the pulpit, to keep delivering these eulogies, to keep ministering to these families and to a nation who have questions about how and why these people lost their lives? It's important to me, one, because we built an organization, a civil rights organization, that this is one of the things. Voting rights and criminal justice reform are the tenets we built National Action Network on. But the personal side of it is, I come out of, you know, Brownsville section of Brooklyn, New York, raised by a single mother on welfare with food stamps, I see a person laying in that casket. That could be me in that casket. That could be my daughter or my grandson. And I'm going to speak for them because somebody would have had to speak for me. 
We're at a moment where there is continued stalemate, continued failure of passage of federal legislation. So I'd like to ask you, when you talk with these families about the potential for legislative change, what do you tell them about the timing? How do you, I I have to imagine if you are a mother who has lost their child, this has got to be exhausting year after year, day after day. I tell them the truth that we can't bring your child back, but we can certainly raise your child's situation and your situation to where there's meaning. There's meaning and your child could be a symbol that we cannot continue to let this happen. And I tell them, I can't promise you when it's going to happen on a federal level, but I can promise you that we'll be there until it happens. The Reverend Al Sharpton, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you. This week, Kentucky joined at least 10 other states this year in passing bills restricting the rights of transgender youth. Some say Kentucky's is one of the most sweeping anti-trans bills in the country. A warning, this story contains a discussion of suicide. Here's Louisville Public Media's Divya Karthikeyan. Kentucky State Senator Karen Berg had to deal with the most devastating thing a mother could imagine. In December last year, Berg's transgender son, Henry Berg Brousseau, died by suicide. He was just 24 and a prominent LGBTQ rights activist who inspired his mother to run for office. This is the last thing my child wrote. She's reading out a press release Henry wrote for the human rights campaign 14 hours before he ended his life. We must all work to repudiate anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric and falsehoods in the strongest possible terms. Because our lives are quite literally on the line. And he went home, and he went out, and he killed himself. Two weeks later, Berg was awash with grief. But she kept her chin up and walked into the Senate chamber, dreading that her legislature, like so many others, would face multiple bills to restrict the rights of LGBTQ people. And I just quietly said, please, let's not politicize this, this session. Please, let's don't go down there. More than two months later, she watched her Republican colleagues, one by one, vote to override a veto on Senate Bill 150, which bans all gender-affirming medical care for trans youth in Kentucky. For public schools, it restricts which bathrooms students can use, puts limits on discussing gender and sexuality. It also allows teachers to refer to students by their gender assigned at birth. It's exactly what her son Henry fought against happening. Woke ideologies are creating barriers to students' education. That's Republican Senator Max Wise talking on the Senate floor. He took the lead on anti-trans legislation this session, starting by targeting the state's progressive education commissioner, because he'd issued guidance telling teachers to use kids' preferred pronouns. Wise is also running for lieutenant governor. And it's time for our governor to listen to parents instead of a commissioner who thinks that teachers should find another profession if they don't subscribe to his woke ideology. The bill gradually morphed into a broader and bigger anti-trans bill, including the ban on gender-affirming medical treatments, and not everyone in the Republican caucus was on board. In the midst of last-minute lobbying and pressure from interest groups, members who were on the fence voted yes, but one Republican pushed back. 
going against your entire caucus is a very uncomfortable place to be. That's Senator Danny Carroll. He had introduced an amendment that would have exempted puberty blockers and gave doctors more discretion, but it didn't have the Senate's approval. My fear and my no vote is for those kids that are being left out, those kids that may be contemplating suicide. Kentucky's first openly trans-elected official, Rebecca Blankenship, says this is the current obsession among most Republicans, but for the transgender community. For us, this is Frankenstein. They've created something that is so far beyond their control, and they are no longer able to do anything but vote yes, vote yes, vote yes to everything. But when Blankenship saw not just activists, but hundreds of Kentuckians rallying in support of trans rights at the state capitol, she knew the next generation will keep fighting for people like her. Trans people are going to have to reveal ourselves and be really vulnerable, because otherwise there will be other people to define us. For NPR News, I'm Divya Kartikeyan in Louisville, Kentucky. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. This news out within the past hour, a Manhattan grand jury has voted to indict former President Donald Trump, marking the first time in American history that a current or former president will face criminal charges. The charges are not publicly known at this time. The Manhattan DA's office has been investigating the former president in connection with his alleged role in a hush money payment scheme and cover-up involving adult film star Stormy Daniels that dates to the 2016 presidential election. NPR is working on the story. We'll have more details as they become available. The time is 619. WBUR supporters include Volante Farms with farm-to-table soups, salads, and sandwiches featuring ingredients that change daily and seasonally. Volantefarms.com. On Wall Street, the markets closed higher for a second straight day today. The Dow picked up more than four-tenths of a percent, S&P gained more than a half percent, and the Nasdaq rose nearly three-quarters of a percent. Details on Marketplace a little bit later. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center with Middleton Heights, the tale of a Filipino family pursuing the American dream. Starts tomorrow through April 23rd. TheUmbrellaArts.org. Over at Fenway Park, Red Sox tried to put together an, in the, an eighth and ninth inning rally. It was good, but not good enough to top the Orioles. Baltimore took the opening day game 10-9. to 9. The forecast, clear skies overnight tonight. Should be chilly down in the upper 20s. Tomorrow should have a changeover from sunshine in the morning to gray skies in the afternoon. Chance of rain late in the day tomorrow. Highs about 48 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. The weekend is looking mixed right now. Rain in a big way on Saturday. Temperatures inching up to about 63. Sunday, sun comes out. Temperatures head to about 46. 40 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Juana Summers. Now we're going to take you to the front lines of climate change. Bangladesh is a low-lying country south of the Himalayan mountains, and it's particularly vulnerable to flooding. It also gets battered with some of the world's worst cyclones. But what's surprising is that fatalities have fallen dramatically, because Bangladesh isn't just ground zero for climate disaster. It's also a hotspot for solutions, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from the country's north. Right now it's the dry season, and I'm on a roughly 25-foot wooden boat making my way through like a web of capillaries that covers northern Bangladesh. Narrow, muddy, tiny rivers. There's some water buffalo, fishing boats, some children running along the riverbank waving. But in the wet season, this just becomes a, a shallow sea. A shallow sea that last June swept away the house that Majida Begum had lived in for 60 years. She squats in the mud where her kitchen used to be, scaling fish with a dull blade. Seasonal floods are part of life here, but they've gotten increasingly erratic, and last year's were the worst Majida had ever seen. Pretty soon we'll be living in the tops of trees, she says, or the land will be strewn with our bodies. I tell my American friends, you know, you send your skeptics to Bangladesh. The awareness of climate change is the highest in the world. Climate scientist Salimul Haq says that while Bangladesh contributes only a tiny fraction of global carbon emissions, everyone here feels their effects. This country is basically a giant river delta that gets inundated as Himalayan glaciers melt, as monsoon rains come in spasms now, and as sea levels rise. But Haq says... We have gone through the doom and gloom phase. That's yesterday's news in Bangladesh. Now it's all about solutions, using satellites to track cyclones, buoys with solar-powered sensors to measure sea level, and 4G cell phone service in areas that might not even have electricity or plumbing, so that... When something happens, almost everybody on land gets the message, gets to shelter, and survive. It's not the technology, it's social capital. It's people knowing what to do. That is Bangladesh's biggest asset. Majida Begum, whose house washed away, She knew when to flee because of a warning sent out by this man hundreds of miles south in the capital, Dhaka. Parto, P-A-R-P-H-O. Parto Protin Barua is an engineer at Bangladesh's Flood Forecasting and Warning Center. Last June, he noticed an unprecedented amount of rain forecast for the Himalayan foothills, an area that's been deforested in recent years. There is no grass or no trees on the hills, so the water just rush, rush downstream. Downstream to low-lying Bangladesh. So he called up his colleague Nazma Akhtar in the far north of the country near the Indian border. She's a housewife with a side job reading a gauge in her local river. This with the numbers on it, it's like a scale showing the river level. Water level, water level. It looks like a yardstick in the riverbank. She checks it five times a day and sends readings to Dhaka by text message on her indestructible old Nokia brick phone. Bangladesh has hundreds of people like Nazma, regular folks, not scientists, who monitor water levels on the front lines of climate change. Last June, Nazma's readings were 15 times higher than normal, a sign of massive rainfall to the north even before it began raining here. 
Zonasma says she knew what was coming, some of the worst flash floods ever to hit her country. And she felt a duty to warn people. Back in Dhaka, Parto, the engineer, got Nazma's data from the north, plugged it into his hydrological model, and totally freaked out. It broke like the records of like last 100 to 150 years. So he grabbed a little microphone attached to his desktop computer and recorded this message on June 19th, 2022. Warning people in the north of the country to evacuate. We try to keep it as simple as possible and as short as possible. And then he holds his breath and hopes people get it in time. That message went out on Bangladesh's emergency warning system as a smartphone push notification, but also as an analog recording accessible even on old Nokias like Nazma's. Meanwhile, up north, Majida Begum was in her kitchen scaling fish and watching the sky cloud over. She lives two hours boat ride from the nearest road and farther still from any flood shelter. She does not have a phone, neither does her neighbor, Noor Jahan, but Noor's nephew does. I don't know what kids do with those fancy phones, Noor says, but somehow that day, we got the scientists' warning. It was actually two days after Parto had sent it out and the nephew got the message that the warning spread by word of mouth through this village and the river was already lapping at the edge of Majida's kitchen. We took refuge on a boat and went three days without food, she recalls. But everyone in their village survived. Old Bangladeshi folk songs celebrate seasonal rains as bringing life rather than trauma. A group of musicians in this village have been reviving those songs and also writing new ones with lyrics encouraging people not to chop down trees or toss litter. Because music, too, is a timeless rural tool for spreading awareness and staying safe. Since last June's devastating flood, neighbors here have been rebuilding raised houses atop sandbags and fortifying the foundations with local indigenous materials. This one is newly built. It's still a mud floor, but it's also mixed with cow dung, and they seal the floor so that when this house does flood, it doesn't become a muddy mess. It sort of acts like a varnish. Majida also built herself something handy, a cook stove that's portable instead of being fixed to the ground. So that the next time she has to evacuate, and she's sure there will be a next time, at least her family won't go hungry. Lauren Freyer, NPR News in Sunamganj, northern Bangladesh. The Republican primary for governor was kind of chaotic in Michigan last year. About half the field was thrown off the ballot for filing petitions full of fraudulent signatures. Election staffers say names were spelled wrong. The information for dead voters was used. They also say obvious handwriting characteristics were repeated throughout some sheets. Many times campaigns turn to paid workers to collect signatures, and that can backfire. Well, the, the vast majority of signature collectors and petition companies do a good job. Um, but there are some bad actors. See, canvassers are often paid by the signature, not the hour, which some say incentivizes fraud. 
Coming up tomorrow on All Things Considered, we'll look at the efforts underway to ensure that the petition process is sound so that democracy prevails. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. NPR is reporting a New York grand jury has indicted former President Donald Trump on charges related to payments Trump made in 2016 to former attorney Michael Cohen to cover up Trump's alleged affair with an adult film star known as Stormy Daniels. We have a statement from one of Trump's lawyers, Joe Tacopino, who said he did not commit any crime. We will vigorously fight this political prosecution in court. The latest is coming up from All Things Considered, starting at 6.30. In the forecast, a cold night ahead tonight, windy too, lows about 28 degrees. For tomorrow, could see sunshine early, then clouds taking over later. Could have a shower around this time tomorrow. Temperatures about 48 degrees. The weekend is looking mixed. Rain on Saturday, up around 63 degrees. Sunday, sunny and chilly again, right about 46 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. H&H breathes new life into Bach's soul-stirring Easter Oratorio this weekend at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handelandhaydn.org. And Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. Habib, A-R-C-H.com.